glad everyone made it. The roads were not very good for us. I'm assuming the same was the case for you, but we've all made it safely. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 22 through 36 here this morning. So Matthew 14, 22 through 36. And once you're there, then I'll ask, as always, if we stand in reverence for God's Word. Matthew 14, 22 through 36. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you and walk on the, wa- on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when, he got, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And may God bless the reading of his word. So, to give a bit of a time reference, to try to stay in the story here, because we're going through the events uh, over several Sundays, everything we've looked at the last really three Sundays has been within a one-day period. So think of what's happened in one day, in a 24-hour span, is that Jesus has learned of his cousin John's death. He has passed uh, over the water after his very short time of grieving, and he has ministered through preaching and through healing to a, a, a large crowd of people, probably twenty to 25,000 people, counted 5,000 by the men. Uh, he has fed them miraculously, and now this is happening. This is a big day. Okay? If you're Jesus, you're the apostles, this is a significant day. And think of how exhausted everyone must be by the end of all of this. But try to keep that in mind. This all happened in one day. So last week we left off with the crowd getting tired, getting impatient, getting hungry, getting antsy. And so Christ and the apostles, likewise, no doubt, were also feeling impatient, tired, and hungry. But they also carried the additional weight of grieving the death of John. And they had a responsibility to minister to these people. So they're extra tired. The shepherds are extra tired. And then Christ got the apostles to do the impossible by serving this giant crowd with the lunch of a single boy. And this, as we saw last week, was to show us that Christ's sufficiency never runs out. His providence is always perfect and perfectly timed. Christ provides what we need, when we need it, and in the manner that is best for us. And that's where we pick up here. Verse 22 says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side when he dismissed the crowds. Remember last week, there's all of a sudden a sudden change in tempo. 
So last week, you know, the apostles were tired and they wanted to get rid of everybody, send them home to go get food, and Jesus prolongs the evening. He says, no, no, we're not sending them home. It's not time for that yet. Uh, we're going to sit down and we're going to have a meal here yet. And I'm just thinking, if you're one of the apostles, come on. We're drained. And now we have to feed a small city? This is too much. And so Jesus prolongs the evening, and then all of a sudden, okay, time to get going. Now everyone leave. Go back home. So there's a sudden change in the tempo, and this, uh, up, this faster tempo carries on through here. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Okay, so this, keep in mind here, there's a sudden change in tempo. Why? Well, I think we're going to find out why. But it's all of a sudden moving fast now after Jesus slowed it all down. <clears throat> and the abrupt change, I think, is, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 14, Herod is terrified because he thinks Jesus is a resurrected form of John the Baptist. So we've got a political ruler who's scared. And if Herod was happy to kill John the Baptist once, if this is John the Baptist resurrected, surely he's more than happy to kill him a second time to get rid of this zombie guy. Okay, so there's that pressure. And then further, in John's account of this miracle, which you can read about in John 6.15, gives the parallel account, John says that after Jesus had fed the crowd, they wanted to crown him as an earthly king. Now think of that dynamic, okay? So the ruler is ready to kill you. He's scared. He's getting paranoid, actually, that you are your cousin who's resurrected. So you have a paranoid, violent man being led by an even more violent woman and her daughter, and we read about that incestuous uh, affair last time. And now you have a crowd that was just served miracles and miraculously fed who wants to crown Jesus king. Can you see how there's lots of gas in the room? <laughs> okay, and, and we've seen that. There's just increasing pressure before this match finally goes off. And so everyone would have been aware of this volatile dynamic that's building up. Christ's enemies are getting more and more focused on him. And the people's desire to make Jesus an earthly king is also intensifying. It's time to leave quickly because this is really heating up and it is not yet time. The temperature's high and that's why Jesus is changing gears. He's sending everyone home and he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee on boat while he goes up to a mountain to pray. And so keep in mind, again, that this has all happened in the span of one day. So things are moving fast, and lots has happened in this day. Verse 23 and 24 go on. It says, And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So the feeding of the 5,000 happened on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and now they're sailing west, or kind of southwest, to Capernaum. And the other accounts have the boat about halfway across, and so this lake's about eight miles wide, so they're probably about three or four miles from either shore. Okay, and if you've ever fished on big water, if you're in Buffalo Bay, three or four miles seems like a pretty significant distance. Okay? Three, four miles from shore, if the water's not happy, if the water's not friendly, does feel like a bit of a distance. Okay? And so keep in mind, if you go back to Matthew 8, what we looked at in spring, we saw another account of the apostles out on the Sea of Galilee when there's sudden anger in the sea. That time was a little different because Christ was sleeping there in the boat with them. But this time, they're alone. 
Now they're by themselves. There's no Jesus fast asleep in the boat. So there is a contrast from that story to this one. But there's also a contrast in after the feeding of the 5,000, the direction that Christ goes versus uh, the direction that the apostles go. Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray and the apostles go down across uh, the sea. And in a biblical conception of things, a frequent theme that we see is that going up on a mountain is a way to get up to heaven, to get up closer to God, while the sea is clearly the lowest point on the globe. And the sea is frequently associated with anger, with wrath, with the tumult of the world, with the anger of mobs and crowds, and the volatility of the world around us. And so this can and should point our attention to the reality of the wrath of man, the confusion and the tumult of our world. And also, it's frequently invoked as a picture of God's anger and God's judgment at that creation. So a sharp separation is happening here, not just in terms of physical location, but also in what's being communicated in these different surroundings. Jesus is ascending to the peace of heaven and communing with the Father. And the disciples are descending into the chaos of an unruly and angry world. And so in terms of making application of what Jesus is doing here, I'm going to ask all of us, and this is for myself as well, this is convicting. If the God-man, if Jesus Christ himself needed time in silence to go talk with the Father, how much more do we need it? Okay. Are we intentional about our times of prayer? Are we intentional? Okay. And, and of course, you can pray while you're working, you can pray while you're driving, yes. But are you being intentional about setting aside the silence and, and the distractions of the world and putting that aside as we talk with the Father? I, I want to suggest that our customs of folding your hands and closing your eyes when you're able to is a very good one. Block out the distractions. Jesus himself needed to be away from the crowd to talk with the Father. How much more do you and me need to be intentional about our times of prayer? One thing that I think about too, and I've tried to be more intentional about in my own life, is when you wake up in the morning, things are generally quiet, is the first thing that you do when you get up in the morning is to go grab your phone and see all the excitement, all the notifications of everything you missed in the last several hours while you were sleeping? And I say this to myself too, because I am equally distracted as anyone else. I think it was John Piper who said, if there's one thing that social media will have accomplished, it will be to prove at the final judgment that no one will be able to say, I did not have time to read my Bible and pray. Okay? Social media has proven you have lots of time. Okay? Social media proves that the average person in this room has six to eight hours a day to pray and read. Okay? Let's not let that judge us at the final judgment. Okay? There's lots of time to pray. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be on social media. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying we do need to set intentional time aside to be in the Word, to talk with the Father, to bring our concerns to Him, and then to put our trust in Him. And also our thanksgiving. So for myself, what this has started to look like is I've always set my alarm about 20 minutes before I need to go out to the barn in the morning because I like to have a cup of coffee before I start my work. And I like to sit in my recliner um, and I've tried to be more intentional about using that time to pray rather than to just start scrolling or seeing what the news of the nighttime was. And for myself, this is an ideal time to pray. And I especially use this time in particular, that morning time of prayer, to pray for my family and for this church. And I pray very intentionally about this church by name. Okay? And you can do that too. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder to do that. You can pray for people in this church by name that the Lord would 
help build us up in him. And so again, if Jesus himself pulls away from the crowd to pray, how much more do we need to pull ourselves away from the crowd and the distraction and be intentional about ourselves praying? Verse 25 picks up and says, and in the fourth watch of the night, and just watch that closely, in the fourth watch of the night, I can't help but notice how intentional some song lyrics are, and maybe now that I'm preaching as much as I am, I pay a lot more attention to song lyrics. Uh, But did you notice in uh, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, there's a reference to the last watch of the night? Just file that for right now, because that's actually pretty significant scripturally. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Okay? The Romans had four watches in the night, between 6 p.m. when the evening started and 6 a.m. when the next day started. And each was a three-hour shift, so you have four watches, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 9 p.m. to midnight, midnight to 3, and then 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Four watches, people take turns watching. And so we're here in the fourth watch of the night, so that means we're somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and most likely towards the end of that time, shortly before sunrise. And this would mean that these guys have been fighting this storm for almost nine hours. Think of how exhausted you'd be fighting a storm on the water for nine hours or close to it. Verse 26 says that they saw Jesus walking on the sea and they were terrified. And remember, we're all hearing this story having heard it many times before. We know it's Jesus. Okay, put yourself in the boat. You are exhausted in every way imaginable. Jesus himself says, get on this boat and go over there. And so, you know, well, what are we going to do? Disobey Jesus? So, so they get on this boat, and they're hit by this storm, okay, by this blast, and they're fighting it for nine hours out of pure exhaustion. Okay? They're exhausted before they got in the boat, and now out of that exhaustion, they're fighting a storm for nine hours in the graveyard shift. And perhaps at this point, yeah, again, we know it's Jesus. They don't. They think they're seeing a ghost. They know that Jesus is a man, and they also know that men can't walk on water. I don't think it's even crossing their mind that this could be Jesus. Because remember, the last time they were on a boat with a storm like this, where did they end up? At a graveyard with a demon-possessed man coming at them. Okay? There could be some nasty flashbacks happening here, and now there's a ghost coming? Like, come on. Is this day never going to end? Okay? I've had days like that on the farm where I think, is this day just never going to end? Okay? And I've never experienced anything like this. These guys have to be asking, will this day please not just go? Put today out of its misery. It's a ghost that's confronting them. And I also want to recall to our minds that often when you feel threatened or you feel scared by one thing, have you ever noticed that you're more anxious about everything? Right? If you're uptight about one thing and the adrenaline's kind of rushing, everything gets intensified. I remember as a kid, who remembers the old cable stable in Landmark? The old Quonset that was always leaning over, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, legend had it when I was in grade three that the grade 12 boys did Satan worship behind the arena. And in grade three rural folklore, that meant the bush behind the arena was pretty scary. And one evening after a game, I don't, I don't remember all the details, but 
I remember thinking, I'm going to be brave enough because there was a sidewalk that went through there. And I was going to be brave enough to walk there by myself, my eight-year-old self, through this demon bush. And I did it. And this little rabbit came darting across. And can you imagine how petrified I was, right? All the spray paint, all the garbage that all these teenagers had left there. Who knows what was happening in that bush? But this was all there. And eight-year-old me thinks, I'm going to be brave. And a rabbit just terrified me. Well, that rabbit wouldn't have been scary out on a field or running through the yard, okay? But if you're you're already scared, if you're already on edge, these things get extra scary. And so these men have been on an adrenaline rush for hours, and now the shadowy figure comes moving across the water in the dark of the night. So it's, you know how it's almost the darkest right as the sun rises, okay? That's the time of day that they're at, and they don't know it's Jesus. We do. They didn't. But after his time of prayer on the mountain, Jesus has caught up to these disciples on foot, even across the sea. Okay, so keep in mind, he went up to the mountain, they went across, uh, and he catches up to them on foot across the sea. Verse 27 says that he speaks to them, calming them by letting them know it's him. So once Jesus is within speaking range, he says, okay, don't, don't panic, guys, it's just me. In verse 28 says, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Peter is showing his true colors here. And how many Bible stories can you think of off the top of your head where Peter's being impulsive? Okay? Peter gives me great hope that I too can be a disciple of Jesus. Okay? Because this guy is always just working with zeal uh, and often more courage than brains, it seems at times. Have you ever heard of the guy, you know, often wrong but never in doubt? That's Peter. Often wrong, but he never doubted himself. He's always all in, wrong or otherwise. But there's a Shift here. Notice here, there's all of a sudden a humility and a teachableness that's starting to form up in Peter. Okay? The old Peter would have just gone for it. But this Peter asks permission. He doesn't put Christ to the test. He asks, if it's you, Jesus, please command me. Okay? And I want to suggest that's a shift and a maturity in Peter's thinking. He's not just operating with pure zeal and impulsiveness now. He wants to know that this is the right thing to do, that he's not putting the Lord to the test, but that he's going to exercise faith and awe and reverence, not just directionless zeal. So he asks for the Lord to command him to come out. And this appears to be kind of a Lord, I believe, help my unbelief type of situation unfolding. Peter knows that he will be safe and secure if he is walking with the Lord. And yet he also waits for a command before he just does this to know that he's not putting the Lord to the test. And when Christ calls him over, Peter shows genuine faith by getting off the boat and walking towards him. And then we note that as long as Peter is focused on Christ, he is upheld. But when his focus shifts to himself and to his environment, suddenly he starts to slip. And when he does start slipping, he immediately calls out to the Lord to be saved. And Jesus does not let him perish in his weak faith. Jesus doesn't even let him go all the way down to prove him a lesson, right? Oh, I will, this will be an example. I'm going to let you sink all the way to the bottom. Jesus has mercy instantly. 
Out of compassion, he saves Peter. He grabs him. But Jesus also doesn't treat Peter's weak faith like it's nothing. Okay? Jesus strikes an interesting balance here. He saves him immediately, but then he takes him to task. Okay? Yes, I saved you despite your weak faith, but here's the, here's the deal, Peter. That weak faith needs to grow up a little bit more yet. He takes an opportunity to correct him. In verse 31, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, I'm glad that you're starting to learn, but you need to keep learning. Okay? You need to keep having this faith formed up in you. Why are you doubting? You had enough faith to get out. Why didn't you have enough faith to keep going? Probably the very worst handling of this text that I have ever seen came at the hands of a a man who used to be a pretty liberal preacher by the name of Rob Bell. He has successfully deconstructed into just being a surfer dude, motivational guru that sometimes shows up on Oprah. And he used this story to show that you've got to have faith in yourself. Okay, so uh, according to his retelling, Peter's uh, faith in himself, okay, Peter believed in himself, and as long as he was believing in himself, you know, you can do anything, you go, Uh, he was up on the water, but as soon as he started to doubt himself, that's when he started to sink. So this, in the hands of Rob Bell, and many motivational type gurus of that same uh, band, would say that this is about faith in yourself. But this is exactly the opposite of what's actually happening here. Peter's faith is obviously not in himself, but in Christ, as evidenced even by his initial question to Jesus. Okay? Jesus is clearly in focus here because he asked for permission from Jesus even before he got out of the boat. And then you'll notice that as long as Peter is focused on Christ, he stays above the trouble. He stays above uh, the violence and the tumult. It's when he takes his eyes off Christ that things start to go backwards and that he starts to sink into the chaos. He starts to fail when he thinks less about Christ and more about Peter and his surroundings. If it suddenly grips him while he's out on the water that men can't actually walk on water naturally, he starts thinking about his native abilities. He starts thinking about how storms and how water work. And when that's the focus, he starts to sink. So I hope you're starting to see a consistent pattern in all these stories and all these events, all these narratives, all these miracles, uh, that these are not just party tricks. They're stories designed that actually happened in real life that are designed to teach us something bigger. All of these events are ordained by the providence of God. And so because of that, they all point to truths outside of themselves. All these miracles, all those accounts are teaching us. And I want to suggest that this is a picture of the Christian life. Sin and confusion and the chaos of this world are all around us, beating at us, and the storms of life often hammer into us, sometimes more than other times. Okay, but we've heard just this morning about several people where the storms of life are smashing up against the boat. And if our attention is focused on what's happening around us, and then you consider your own native or your own natural abilities, of course you're going to get pulled in. How can you not? Okay? God won't give you more than you can handle. Depending on what you mean by that isn't actually true. We frequently, in fact, we live in a world that is more than we can handle. Life is more than we can handle in our native abilities. Okay? He will not, however, give you more than he can handle. Okay? God will not give you more than he can handle. 
That's one thing we can learn here. So the point is not to look into yourself. Looking into yourself is actually the reason that the world is as chaotic as it is. Because we have 8 billion people doing what their heart tells them to do. How can that not be chaos? Okay? Of course that's chaos. So the solution can't be more of the same. The solution must be getting outside of ourselves and looking to Jesus. Looking externally to the risen Lord. And Peter is able to prevail over the trials and tribulations only insofar as he is looking out of himself and towards the Lord Jesus. And because Christ is absolutely sovereign, he comes not only to offer salvation in the storm, but we have to remember that the storm, like all other storms, is actually property of King Jesus. That storm belongs to Jesus just as much as Peter does. And Christ is saving Peter in and through a storm that itself belongs to him. And how often isn't this the case in our own lives as well? The storm is threatening to pull you under one last time. I don't think I can go another round. It's too much. I'm anxious. I'm overwhelmed. It's just all turning into chaos. I can't pull it off. And then something even more scary starts appearing over the horizon. Okay? And in this case, it's Christ coming on the water. And how often isn't it the case in your life, though, that the thing that you fear the most, the thing that's the most scaring, is actually Jesus coming into the story to rescue. The thing we fear most is the very thing that's going to offer us salvation. And so, when difficulty and threats come our way, we must find a way to agree uh, with the great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson. Whoever brings an affliction to us, it is God who sends it. Is someone making your life difficult? Okay. Well, don't just look to who brought you your trouble. Look to who sent it. Who sent that difficult guy into your life? The Lord of the universe did. It must be good for me that that difficult guy is in your life. God withholds no things that are needful for us. And so I want to suggest that there is great comfort in this because it means that the storms are not random. Okay, they're not by chance. They're not meaningless. They're not senseless. This isn't like a little short spurt where God suddenly starts losing the arm wrestle of the world to Satan and Satan's all of a sudden getting control. No, no, everyone run, everyone panic. Okay? If this was a moment of God temporarily losing control and he has to regain control afterward, anxiety would be the proper response. But our trials are custom designed by God. So there can be a confidence and a peace even in the storm. The storm itself belongs to God. So after Jesus corrects Peter for his lapse in faith, they get in the boat, and just like the last time, Christ quiets the storm. Test is over. Now we're just going to sit in calm water here. Verse 33 shows that the disciples are actually learning something in Christ's seminary program. If you remember, going back to Matthew 8, the disciples actually are more terrified of Jesus after he calms the storm than they were of the storm. Remember that? What kind of a guy is this? Get away from me. Okay? Someone who can make the water calm and calm the storm immediately is someone who is scary. So they're wondering, what kind of a guy are we reckoning with in Matthew 8? And here they just confess, surely you're the son of God. They're maturing. They're getting somewhere. They're learning in this seminary program, walking with Jesus. And the meticulous arrangement of the details in redemptive history runs through this story as well. There's a motif of an angry sea picturing God's anger in many, many, many of our Bible stories. And remember that this all happens as part of one long story 
Now in this day, where miraculous bread has been served, and now God's people are going to be saved through an angry sea. And maybe your mind goes back to the Exodus, where bread is used as a picture after the Exodus in the form of manna. But if you read in Exodus 13, right before the Exodus through the Red Sea, a festival, a feast of unleavened bread is prescribed. And why is it unleavened? Because now it's time to go. Okay? God's children, it's time to hustle now. Go, go, go. Okay? Make this bread. Get going. Something bad's about to happen. Get on the move now. We don't have time for this yeast to work. It's unleavened bread. Get going. After the bread is given, something violent happens at the sea, which proves to be their salvation. And notice, Exodus 14.24 says that the salvation of the sea for the Israelites is made final in the last hours before the morning. Exodus 14.24 says that it happens in the last watch of the night. Interesting. So does this. In the last watch of the night, God closes the angry water up over the Egyptians and finalizes the salvation of the Israelites to the other sides. They also had to leave a volatile political situation in a hurry. In the last watch of the night. Okay? This is another layer on top of that story, I do believe. And the psalmist declares the glory of God in these kinds of salvation at sea stories. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77? And we're going to pick up in verse 16. Psalm 77, 16 through to the end. And we can rightly insert Christ into this story. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet, Jesus, your footprints were unseen. You walked across the water. You left no trace. Your footprints were unseen. And just like those who had gone before, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Salvation through the angry sea. So most certainly what we're seeing, what's happening here, can remind us, looking back to God's previous salvation in the Exodus, to remember that God has, in fact, been our help in ages past. But I also want to suggest there's a prophetic element looking forward here, like another layer of this story being told over again one last time. The story also points forward to a preview of things that are very, very soon going to take place. There's a prophetic glimpse here into the tumultuous night of the Last Supper and Christ walking to the anger of his cross. Keep in mind, in that story, the disciples have also just been served a supper, after which Jesus slips away to go and pray while they experience an unsettled night. And this very same guy, who's the feature of this story, Peter, is going to have an especially rough night. He's going to promise ahead of time, I'm just going to hold fast. I'm going to be that sure and steady anchor. But when he is surrounded by difficulty, three times in a row, no, I don't know that guy. No, nope, never heard of him. I, I, I don't know who that is. And then in the last minutes, before daybreak, a rooster crows, 
And he realizes he's sunk once again. Lord, save me. Jesus, help. I failed again. I've looked to myself instead of to you. And eventually he will confess again that truly this is the Son of Man. And all of this is going to happen as Jesus himself is walking across the water into the sea of God's wrath to calm that sea one last time at his crucifixion. And then in verse 34, after they cross over, they came to a land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So this is a place just outside of Capernaum. And this is the same place uh, with the woman of the discharge of blood uh, who was uh, healed by touching the hem of Christ's garment. And she was instantly healed in that moment, again, just by touching the hem of his garment. And perhaps the memory of that miracle in this very neighborhood, as well as the word that was traveling around the region of Christ's other miracles, spurred these people on to come to be healed. In Luke's account of the woman with the discharge of blood, Jesus asked who touched him because he felt power going out through him, Luke 8, 46. And this should not be understood, this power going out of Jesus should not be understood as though Jesus is this fuel tank and she took some power out of him so now the needle on the fuel gauge is lowered because now Jesus is left with less power. We should not understand it that way. We've already seen in the feeding of the 5,000, which we've just come through, that there is no end to the supply of God's provision. Christ doesn't feel his power being sent out away from him, but merely moving to touch another. And because these last miracles are pointing us finally and moving us in time to the drama of the crucifixion, it's fitting that we make application here uh, to our own salvation as we come in contact with Christ. Touching the Savior does make us well. And when we encounter Jesus Christ with saving faith, our guilt gets imputed or transferred onto him, we discussed this morning, and his righteousness is fully imputed to us. All your guilt, all your sin, all your shame gets put on Jesus to be satisfied once and for all. God is no longer angry with those who are in Christ Jesus. And all his righteous obedience gets transferred to you. So God sees you as fully righteous, as perfect, as pure. And the fact that he does this time and time and time again with more and more people through history doesn't mean that that layer of righteousness on you has to keep getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Right, Because there's only so much peanut butter in the peanut butter jar, and so the more pieces of bread we sprint it over, the, the thinner it has to get. Not at all. Okay? Jesus doesn't have to bleed a certain quantity of blood for each sinner. His atonement is once for all, and it never runs out. Okay? Just because he gives more away doesn't mean there's less left over. We just saw that. These baskets remain full. More salvation for you does not mean there's less for the next guy. And just like the widow to whom Elisha ministers, the oil of Christ's blessing can just keep running out. Keep filling up other vessels, but it, the source never runs out. Okay? These people touching the hem of Christ's garment, it's not like they're depleting him. There's lots left over. There's plenty, an infinite supply left over. And so this story of Christ meeting the disciples on the water reminds us that God's providence is perfect. Not only in resolving difficulty, but also in coming to us through the exact difficulty that must be be necessary and good for us, even in ways we may not understand. Peter appreciated the saving hand of Christ that much more because he was in the storm. He had to walk through it. And the principle should likewise be plain for us. 
your difficulties, and I know some of you this morning are experiencing significant difficulties. Chris was supposed to be here this morning, and he's stuck, sick. Okay? There's significant difficulties in many lives here this morning. And they're all custom designed by God for your good. I don't know how, I don't know why, but we know that it is for our good. God only gives us that which is needful. And it may be painful and even scary. And fear may be intensified when we see the next unknown thing coming across in the shadows. And the light has not yet broken through. But the very thing which seems the most threatening, those clouds that we dread the most, at the right time, are precisely what delivers our remedy. And the providence of God in sending the right challenge and then delivering salvation at just the right time is a deep comfort for Christians. Nothing is random. Nothing is by chance. Our difficulties are merely the path that God designs so he can get to us at the right moment and give us what we need. And the psalmist says he doesn't even leave footprints. He's just there, just in time. God withholds nothing that we need, and so whatever we receive from him is for our eternal good. It's preparing us for a weight of glory. And this is why it's entirely fitting to thank God in your difficulties and then go on and ask him to bring it to an end. There's nothing contradictory about that. Thank you, Lord, for this storm. Now please make it end. That's a fitting prayer. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. This has hurt for long enough. Please make it go away. And thank you for what you've just taught me. That has certainly been true in my own life as I've struggled through different things. And on the other side, I say that's the worst thing I've ever gone through. I don't want to do it again, and I don't wish it on my worst enemy. And that was the most important season of my life. There's nothing contradictory there. Thank you for the storm, Jesus. Now make it stop. That's what happens here. Peter did not put Jesus to the test, but he waited for a command before getting out. And as long as he was looking Outside of himself and to Christ, he was fine. He only starts sinking in to his environment and to his surroundings and to his own natural abilities when he thinks about himself, when he thinks about what seems natural. So when your assurance or your confidence are weak, Jesus is ready to grab your hand and pull you up. Then he's going to give a little smirk at you and say, okay, now smarten up. Okay. Why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt me? I didn't even let you sink all the way down. I grabbed your hand as soon as I could. Now learn something from this. Okay? Turn a profit on it, please. And so I want to leave you with this question. When the storms of life come threatening you, and they inevitably will, where are you going to look? Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that only good things come from your hand. Lord, if we are in you, you send us everything that we need and nothing that we do not need. Lord, if we knew what you know, we would ask for exactly what you send us. And yet, Lord, sometimes those things are painful. Sometimes they leave our heads spinning. Sometimes we don't know what this is accomplishing, Lord, and we may even go to the grave not fully understanding. And yet, when we get to the other side, we'll look back and see every loose thread put together, no remainder, and we will say that was the best story ever told. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd be with each one this morning. 
suffering different kinds of afflictions or frustrations or disappointments or anxieties or uncertainties, Lord, and they just see the next bad thing coming over the horizon. I pray that you would press this story into our hearts, into our minds. Lord, you delivered just-in-time salvation, and I pray that we would rest in that proof, in that promise. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, continue to work in and through our struggles, and then we also pray for peace as we trust in you. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
God's people have had to walk through many struggles. In today's text, we've seen another retelling of a familiar story in which God gives His people rest and bread and then sends them away before their enemies get to them. It has been said that you know who someone's God is by seeing who they cry out to when life gets hard. The one you expect to deliver you in your day of testing is your God. For some, this is their bank account. For others, it may be the government. For others, it's their intelligence. It could be a friend or a family member, but for Peter, it is Christ. Christ holds the power of winds and waves in his hands, and he will turn them back at precisely the right moment. He often comes to us in an unexpected and even frightening ways, and we must always look to Christ instead of to ourselves. But when these volatile seasons come our way, the importance of looking to Christ is highlighted. Left to ourselves, we struggle and sink. Left in the hands of Christ, we will be rescued and brought to safety until the storm passes by. And I'll leave you with a benediction from Psalm 121, 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And go in peace.